Today, we are back in the Gospel of John, and starting chapter 21 this morning, the final chapter in John's Gospel. But back up, because we're going to hit the last couple of verses in chapter 20, which we didn't cover um, the last time we were here. In fact, let me read those for us. John 20, 30, and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, what John is saying to us is that he's been making selections along the way, right? He has not written down all that he knows about Jesus. He says there were many other signs that Jesus did. What John has done is select from these signs for a specific purpose. You know, usually when someone writes the biography of someone who has died, uh, he he gives as much detail as he possibly can. Uh, He wants to recall every every little thing. You know, he wants to remember, you know, what it was like when they were having that picnic one day, you know, over there, or or what happened when they, you know, went into the city that morning. and, 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 And there's not many of those details in the Gospels. It's not a It's not a comprehensive biography of the Lord Jesus. And maybe that's because when these gospel writers were writing, and maybe one of the reasons this is is the case, is because Jesus was still alive. I mean, they had seen him. They believed he was alive, right? He was not dead yet. Just an idea. But the other thing that's emphasized here in that verse is that these signs were given, the text says, in the presence of the disciples. These whom Jesus had chosen to be with him during that three-year period of his earthly uh, life and ministry. And it was absolutely crucial to the Christian faith that there be those who were credible eyewitnesses to the events that took place and ear witnesses to the words that he said. People, you know, just saying, yeah, I had an experience with Jesus or you know, here's what Jesus means to me. That's not the kind of basis on which to build the Christian faith, right? At the end of the day, Christian testimony, Christian witness is the witness of these men, the witness of these apostles who had been there, done that, right? Got the t-shirt, I was with Jesus. That's why we listen to them. That's why we listen to them. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that they took notice of these men, that they had been with Jesus. So when these apostles started doing the same kinds of things that Jesus did, they performed the kinds of miracles that he did, and even more than Jesus had done, the people noted, ah, those guys had been with Jesus. Notice something else in verse 31. It says, these are written... When John says this, he's using a little formula here that comes from the Old Testament about the writing of Scripture. And and the use of this expression here tells us that these men, these gospel writers, understood that they were writing Holy Scripture. They were writing the Word of God down for us. These are written And why is the Scripture given to us? Do you see the answer? Did you pick it up in verse 30 and 31? What's the answer? These are written so that 
you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why is the Bible in your hands this morning, Heather Hills? Why has God given you the Bible? Whether you are not a Christian or whether you are a Christian, here's the reason that you might believe and that you might understand that when the Bible talks about believing, it always means believing in something, believing in a message. What are the things that we're to believe? We're to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the long-awaited one. We're to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the one himself that John had spelled out for us all the way at the beginning of the book. Remember, the Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Son that comes from the Father. This is what you have to believe if you believe the Scripture. This is what you're meant to believe. The, this, is what John, this is why John has selected the events from Jesus' life that he has and compiled them into this Gospel. This is the reason. So that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And that by believing you might have life. That wraps up chapter 20. So then, to this last and longest appearance of the resurrected Jesus in John 21, recorded in any gospel. Verse 14 tells us that this is Jesus' third appearance to the disciples. And in this appearance, he's going to show them the reality of his risen human nature. As we walk through this passage, I just want to give you three um, main observations to note. And the first observation is that I want you to see there's one of authenticity. I want you to see authenticity here. It's genuine, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So after everything John has just narrated to the book, to this, to this far, Jesus appears to them again. In other words, Jesus was not continually appearing to them. During this six-week period between his resurrection and his ascension when he went back to heaven, Jesus was not with the disciples all the time. He wasn't with them continuously. He came to them at intervals because he's teaching them that even though he's alive, he is not risen with the same kind of life as he had before, if that makes sense. He, he doesn't live now. Jesus is not living now with the flesh, with, with the unglorified body like you and I have, like he once had. Things are different now. He doesn't, he doesn't live under the sun, as Ecclesiastes will talk a lot about, like we do. He has been glorified. He has a glorified body now, and there is a certain place that's been created for glorified people. You know what that's called? Heaven. God created that space, and he's waiting for the day when he will recreate the universe, new heavens, new earth, and we will live in a renewed, perfect world. So right now, Jesus is just coming occasionally to them. This is the third appearance. 
And then Jesus appeared to them. That's what it means when it says he revealed himself. He made himself appear. Like we would watch, you know, on Bewitched, you know. Remember, Samantha would just appear and disappear, right? Some of you, that's too old for. To their view, he's here one minute, he's gone the next. That's the way he had appeared to them during these 40 days. He just appears. The place he appears to them is by the Sea of Tiberias. It's named after the city of Tiberias, which was built in honor of Tiberius Caesar. John tells us that because the disciples had been told, we know from other Gospels, to go up into Galilee and that the Lord Jesus was going before them into Galilee. And I think the other reason it's mentioned is that it seems by this stage that they're not hiding in an upper room anymore. That the Lord has banished their fears at this point. They're, not, they're out in plain view. They leave the city. They, they go to Galilee. They go together. They're not going around like a brood of hunted and wanted men anymore. They go back to Galilee. Many of them come from here. Many, they would be recognized easily in this place. And this is where Jesus will appear to them. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin. Yep, that same Thomas. The one you remember from chapter 20. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Seven names are mentioned here, but the names are mentioned. Uh, why? Well, because remember, at the time of this writing, these, a lot of these people were still alive. You know, the, whenever, whenever names are mentioned in the Gospels, one of the reasons is so that you could probably go and find these people and ask them, were you really there? And they would say, yes, I was really there. Let me tell you about it. These were eyewitness accounts. And what strikes us is that when they got there to Galilee, there's this very human reaction. They're back in the home territory. They're waiting for Jesus to, you know, appear and they have time on their hands, and they've been told to wait until Jesus comes to them. They're hanging out. They've been through an enormous personal and emotional and psychological time of spiritual tension and tribulation. I mean, just think back what they've been through over the last couple of weeks. Simon Peter said to them, verse 3, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And it's against that background that Peter takes the initiative, proposes a fishing trip. The others are unanimous. Everything about the text suggests that this was spontaneous. It, there was no big plan. There was no preparation involved. They just said, let's go fishing. That's what we know to do, right? That's what we're trained to do. The problem is, of course, that that we, as readers of the Bible, 2,000 years later, are not very satisfied with that. We want to speculate, right? We want to, why did they go fishing? There must be some reason, you know? What was the motivation behind what they did here? And, and it's interesting as you read about this story from different authors and different commentaries that people come up with all kinds of ideas. Were they bored? 
out of their minds? You know, did they do it because they needed some money to support themselves? Uh, uh, they needed to catch some fish so they could sell the fish because they, they needed to support themselves. So somebody else put the idea forward that, you know, Peter's thinking is, uh, I've been a failure as a disciple, but I'm a really good fisherman, so let's go fishing. I can raise my self-esteem, you know. Well, I don't think that any of those things are the reasons. Why are they not the reasons? Well, well, I hope that you're learning as we study the Bible together that if it's not in the Bible, then it's above our pay grade to speculate what the reasons are, right? So I just spent all that time in the sermon wasting time telling you that none of these reasons are any good. They're speculations. They went fishing. Why wouldn't they go fishing? That's what they did. They went out. They got into the boat, the text says. But that night they caught nothing. Now, that was very unusual. I mean, these are seasoned fishermen. You could argue that they hadn't been doing this for a while. They've been with Jesus the last three years. But these were seasoned fishermen. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to fish. They'd been working all night long. They're exhausted by the morning. The text tells us that Peter had stripped down. He was obviously sweaty and, and exhausted. They caught nothing. And it just reminds us, you know, that there are times in life when frustrations come in. There are times in life when things don't go according to plan. There are times of God's design, great times of providences in our lives that seem to go contrary to all that we hoped for, all that we'd prayed for, all that we dreamed would be the case. And we wonder why. And our minds race to find explanation for these things. Sometimes we're unsatisfied just to accept the fact that life doesn't always go according to plan. But also we're reluctant to see things against the bigger picture. These men at the end of this day, they're exhausted. They've tried hard. They've been working all night. But they've caught nothing. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Things are just becoming visible. It's early morning. They're just starting to be able to make things out. And they see this figure standing on the beach. <clears throat> Another one of these sudden, unexplained standing uh, incidents that we've already read about. If you look back, it's kind of interesting. If you look back in chapter 20, verse 14, verse 19, verse 26, there he is standing. He's just unexplained, just kind of there. And like Mary Magdalene back in chapter 20, they did not recognize the Lord from looking at this figure. It's also normal in some ways. It's authentic. They're fishermen. They've been fishing. They're exhausted. They haven't caught anything. Notice, secondly, verses 5 and 6. Notice here Jesus' authority. His authority. Jesus said to them, we, we read later in the text that 
they weren't too far away from shore, about 100 yards. So Jesus was able to call out to them, to shout to them. And what does he say? Children, do you have any fish? The word children was not a very common word that people used to address adults. Uh, It highlights a kind of fatherly feeling of Jesus toward these men. They're all similar ages as him in, in, when it comes to human terms. But, but as the resurrected Lord, now he's speaking to them from a different position, from a different perspective. And in this fatherly expression, we see something unique about the Lord Jesus. The Father, the Father, has given the Son children. Jesus says that. Now, we understand that within the Godhead, within the Trinity, only the Father is the Father, right? But there's a sense in which the Son acts in a fatherly way toward his people. I think that's what's really in view in those titles when we go back to the Old Testament. You read like in Isaiah 9, for example, those those, uh, titles that are attributed to Jesus like um, Prince of Peace, um, he's called the Everlasting Father. Well, well, Jesus is not the Father. He's the Son. But he acts in a fatherly way toward his children that the Father gives to him. These, as Hebrew says, these many sons and daughters that he is bringing into glory. And he treats them in a gentle way. He calls out to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they give a very articulate reply no and then is when jesus's word of power is spoken now they don't know it's a word of power a word of authority they think it's the advice of some stranger on the shore but here's what he says to them cast the net on the right side of the boat you will find some now if this strikes you as familiar Uh, That's because it has already happened once in the life of Jesus, in their ministry. And and things are going to kind of click in their minds here in a little bit. And if you want to go back, I think it's in uh, Luke chapter 5, where you can read about the first episode of this. And there are some interesting similarities and differences between these two accounts. That's, That's your own Bible study, okay? But he says here, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, throughout John's gospel, we found Jesus consistently acting with power, haven't we? And absolute authority. And what happens next is set in the context of the disciples' obedience to Jesus' command. He says, try the right side and you'll catch some. And almost with this smooth transition here in the text from the frustration that they must have felt at having caught nothing all night as seasoned fishermen. They do what this guy says, this guy on the shore. They, they find themselves unable not to do what he commands. They, they listen to this guy on the shore, tell them what to do, and then they do it. His word of command becomes a word of power. Remember back with me. Throughout this gospel, Jesus speaks 
and things happen, don't they? Jesus says, Lazarus. And a guy who's been dead for four days walks out of a tomb. When Jesus speaks, there's power. When Jesus says to these men, drop your nets on the right side of the ship, there's a huge harvest of fish. So they cast it, the text says, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The boat's nearly sinking with the fish. It's an enormous catch. They can't even drag the nets out of the water. So many fish have leaped into their nets. Listen, it's like this. When Jesus says, cast your nets and you'll catch fish, the fish are fighting with each other to get into that net to obey their creator. That's the power of the word of Jesus. Authority. What's the significance of this familiar story? Well, given the context that we have in the rest of this chapter, where Jesus equips his men to be apostles, to be his witnesses, he's reminded them that their great business is to open the gates of the kingdom to those who repent and believe the gospel. There may very well be a connection here in this story with the apostles' great commission to preach the gospel. A symbol here of the authority and the promise of the risen one that he will keep them and, and that they will bring a harvest of people into the kingdom of God. It may be in the, in the bigger context of John's gospel. Going back to chapter 17, do you remember in his prayer in the, in the garden when Jesus prays for those who will believe in me through their word? Remember that? Through the apostles' witness? What is the apostolic witness? It's the New Testament that you have in your hands. And whenever we preach the word of God to men and to women or to boys and girls, as we'll be doing this week, whenever we proclaim the good news of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures, what we're doing is relaying to other people the witness of these men. And whenever somebody becomes a Christian, no matter where they are in the world, for the last 2,000 years, they have become a Christian on the basis of these men's witness and testimony. And it was Jesus, by the way, who forged a link between fishing for people and fishing for fish, wasn't it? Jesus told them, do you remember early on? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So this enormous quantity of fish that they caught may be some kind of a symbol to them and, and to us that, that this is what God is going to do through them and through us. All the nations of the earth, all people and tribes and tongues and nations will be blessed because you obey Jesus' voice. And this amazing miracle that Jesus performed, getting the fish into the net, is the miracle He's performing every day all over the world to countless people as they are brought into a living faith 
of Jesus Christ as their Lord. There's a beautiful thread that runs through the Bible if you want to tug on it sometime and make a good Bible study. The Lord is the Lord of life. He referred to that, didn't he, at the end of chapter 20, that you might have life through his name. Life where it's impossible for life to exist. Go tug on that thread in the Scripture sometime. In the beginning, God created out of nothing everything that exists, right? When Sarah's too old to have a child, God graciously creates in her womb a child. When Israel is enslaved in Egypt without any chance of being freed, and they've been there for 400 years, the Lord intervenes and delivers His people. When David's facing Goliath and the armies of the Philistines are overwhelming, God graciously and lovingly provides victory through David and his sling. When Ezekiel is out in the wilderness preaching to a bunch of old dry bones, you remember that one? And those bones come together and are clothed with flesh and then come alive. It's the work of the Word of God. The Word of God has authority. It has power to accomplish the will of God. Not only in this miracle of the fish, but in the miracle of the many who will come into the kingdom of God. So I see authority here in this text. Do you see it? A third observation, verses 7 to the end here. Um, I want you to see a note of adequacy adequacy. Following the story, John is the first to recognize Jesus. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that's code word by this point, right? For the author of the gospel, John the evangelist. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And, you know, things are starting to click here. They may not have recognized him on the shore, right? But they've had an experience like this before where they cast their net on the other side And the fish almost overwhelmed them. So John, uh, things click. He figures this out. We know this man on the shore by what he can do. We've seen it often enough. It is the Lord. They don't recognize him by looking at him. They recognize his works before they realize who it is. And Peter, Peter's different from John. Peter's just gung-ho, isn't he? Peter's out the boat swimming to shore before John can say another word. Look at the text. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. He's swimming those hundred yards. And it's going to be a record. And the others are all left in the boat. (laughs) You know, it's just a reflection. You know, the Christian church is made up of all kinds of people, isn't it? There are people like John, people who are very perceptive, very intuitive, very empathetic, very sympathetic. There's people like Peter, just a dynamo of action. Just a, you know, they're going to get stuff done. Project managers. And look at, and look at the rest of us in verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. There's the others. There's the rest of them. The ones who stay in the boat. Because if they get out of the boat, they'll lose the catch. 
right? If they don't stay, all these fish that they've just caught are going to get away. So they stay in the boat. While the others are running to Jesus. They stay in the boat. They manage the weight. And slowly but surely, they get the boat to the shore where Jesus is waiting. Pastor Trey already alluded to it this morning. I think uh, Brother Greg did as well. But there's a place for everybody in the body of Christ. There's a place for all kinds and all types of people in the body of Christ. And most of us, for all our lives, we'll just keep keeping on. We'll do what we can. We'll be faithful. And God will use what we can do in the bigger picture. We need intuitive, spiritually minded Johns. We need goal setting, high power Peters. But the church wouldn't survive without the rest of us looking after the nets, tending to the fish, bringing them to Jesus. I'll ask the praise team to come back to the front for our last song here in a minute. As they're coming, I think there's, there's one last thing to see here, and it's kind of a beautiful picture to think about. You know, there were periods when the disciples found themselves at sea in a storm. Remember that? And Jesus came to them. You know, in the Bible, the storms at sea were often pictures about the troubles and trials the tribulations of this life. And, and now after the resurrection, Jesus does not come to them on the sea. Did you notice that? Like he could have, you know, like walked out on the water to them, you know? Or he could have like appeared in the boat, like surprise. Yeah. But he didn't do that. Now he appears to them on the shore. And I think it's a subtle thing here, but just think about it for a second. From now on, we're going to Him. Now, that's not to say He's not with us by the Holy Spirit. He is. He indwells us. But Jesus in His resurrection, in His glory, is on the shore. We're at sea. We're enduring the trials and disappointments and frustrations, the tests of this life. And we are going to Him. And in the end, the business of being the people of God today is the business of these men on the boat, working hard to get and to keep the fish on board their little boat until they get to the shore. And that shore is where Jesus is. That's where we're going too, by the way. And when we get to the shore, we're going to find that Jesus has made preparations for us. Just as he had for his disciples that morning. Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. The fish laid out on it. Kind of ironic, isn't it? And bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. That says something about Peter, doesn't it? They, you know, the disciples could hardly get the boat to shore. And Simon goes out and hauls the net ashore himself. Strong man. Full of large fish. 153 of them. What's the symbolism there? I don't know. Okay? 
The Bible doesn't say. He just counted the fish. There's 153 of them. That's all we know. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Why is that mentioned? I'm not sure. In Luke chapter 5, the nets do break. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. Go tug on it. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I love this. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. Does that sound familiar? Took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Fish in the barbecue. Interestingly, we read here about a charcoal fire. All I'll say about that is that the term is used only one other time here in John's Gospel. Back in chapter 18, charcoal fires mentioned right before Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. And that may be a little hint in the text of what is to come in next week's text. The fish and the bread are laid out. He welcomes us to sit and eat with him. As we come to the end of the sermon this morning, here's a great picture of this very authentic story. As the apostles report on the authority of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. When he speaks, his word will accomplish what he intends. And when you speak the word of God through the apostles' witness, when you do that this week to boys and girls in Vacation Bible School, or when you do that to your neighbors or to your coworkers at your business, or to people you run into here or there, when you have an opportunity to speak for the Lord, that word will never return void. The Bible says that. Never. It never returns void. Well, all the people don't get saved when I tell them. That's not the word returning void. Sometimes the word hardens people who are hardening their own hearts as well as makes people alive. Heather Hills, don't allow yourself to become browbeaten and discouraged by naysayers who say, you're not doing enough to bring in the people of God into the kingdom. Or, you're not seeing enough people converted by your witness. The devil is the discourager of the people of God. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Rather, we must rest. We must determine to rest in the power of Christ's word to do its work. Christ's word has power. Christ's word in the gospel can change lives, can bring them from darkness to life. And we are faithful. We must be faithful. We can't give up because it's hard. <clears throat> and you know what? We'll find the fish in the net. If you're faithful, 
in spreading the seed, in giving forth the word of God, you'll find fish in the net. And when the day comes, we'll see Christ on the shore. And all that will matter then is that we join him to eat with him and enjoy his company forever. What a day. Let's stand together. We're going to close with a song just to remind us of that day and when we'll be with him. It's such an encouragement when days are hard, when days are frustrating, when we try and try and try and try and we don't catch anything. Don't give up. The power is not in your efforts. The power is in the Word of Christ. Rest in that and be faithful.